Okay. Yeah, that won't last there very long. <laughs> I was not told there would be technology involved. Very, 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 well, I was told. <laughs> but anyway, um, thank you all for being here. And uh, thank you, Nicole, and Open Way for inviting me to come in and talk about this. In, in my role with NAMI Missoula, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, I have given a number of um, suicide prevention presentations in the community, uh, kind of guiding people through intervening with somebody in a mental health crisis. I have also given a lot of um, just suicide awareness talks, replete with statistics and charts and attempts to kind of um, show people the scope of the problem and put the problem of suicide into context, especially here in Montana. But when Nicole and I talked about what she wanted me to do this evening, um, it was clear that, that those things are not what I'm here for. I'm here to be part of and contribute to a community conversation um, that has to start somewhere, and in fact has to start lots of somewheres, but, but I'm glad to help get it start, started here this evening. Um, so what I'm going to be sharing with you are simply my personal reflections about suicide. Um, this will be somewhat unsystematic, which is a um, polite way of saying I'm probably going to be all over the place with this presentation. But, um, and I do have my stopwatch, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep the time in mind. So on a Friday night um, in August, late August of 1983, it was Labor Day weekend. It would have been the last weekend um, of August of 1983. I jumped off a bridge in Dayton, Ohio, into the Miami River, which, which ran beneath the bridge. Now, I had made suicide attempts before that, and I would make suicide attempts after that. There, there are some particular reasons why, when I talk about my experience as an ex-suicide, I focus on that one in particular. One of the reasons is that I have read a lot of memoirs by people who have attempted suicide. I have read a lot of studies by suicideologists who, who do the research on these things. And they are pretty unanimous in saying, in, in particular, they have studied folks who jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And they are pretty much unanimous in saying that everybody who jumped and survived says that the instant they left the bridge, they regretted it, and they wished they could, they could change what they had just done. I am here to tell you that on a Friday night in August in 1983, when I jumped off the bridge in Dayton, Ohio, as soon as I was in free fall towards the water, and I am almost ashamed to say this, but it, it, it is true. It remains to this day one of the most euphoric moments of my life. I had never been so happy and felt at peace with myself and with the universe, thinking it's over. I've done it. I was certain I was not going to survive this, and I was so glad to be done with the struggle with myself, which, which I will talk about 
in, in terms of why I did this. So, so that is one reason that I focus on that, is I seem to be an outlier in terms of the suicide studies. I didn't regret it. What I regretted was when I hit the water, and I won't go into detail about what happened after that, but that's when the euphoria stopped, and, and that's when the panic um, set in. Another reason that I, that I mentioned that incident in particular is that I looked upon that, and it took me a few months after that incident, I think, to, to put it in this context or to frame it this way. I believe that that, that particular attempt, I, I believe that I was born again in having done that, baptized, as it were, in the waters of the Miami River in Dayton, Ohio. And I was born again as a suicide. What I knew from that moment on was that I was going to die by suicide. I did not know when, I did not know how, I did not know how many attempts it was going to take me, but I knew from that time, from that moment on, there is no other way I'm leaving this world. This is my way out. And so I was no longer just a person who got depressed and occasionally attempted suicide. I was a suicide. It was my vocation. So I was thinking, as, as I prepared to, to come over here and talk this evening, I was thinking that, honestly, I have no particular wisdom to impart. I can talk about my experience. I have no real wisdom to impart. I'm guessing that, that all of you know more about, or as much about suicide as I do. And, and I can guarantee you the, that the collective wisdom of the people in this room uh, is, is more than whatever wisdom I bring. And so I actually was thinking at one point, um, there's a quotation from a philosopher, the, the best-named philosopher ever. If you're going to be a philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein has to be the best name for a philosopher ever. And, and one of my favorite quotes from Wittgenstein is, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must remain silent. And so I thought, maybe I should just show up and not say anything. And then I thought better of that in part because what fun would that be for me? Um, I have to talk. But, but also because the thing about suicide is that there is already in our society, in our culture, there is a conspiracy of silence about this issue. And so with all due respect to Wittgenstein, this has to be talked about. Even, even if we talk about it in halting and awkward and tentative ways, because it's a scary topic, we've got to talk about it in hopes that we can stumble and, and blunder our way through to some wisdom, and then that we can use that wisdom for ourselves and just as importantly for our friends, our family, our neighbors, that we can save some lives with that. Um, and so the, the only wisdom I have to offer you um, is the fact that I'm willing to talk about this. And, and then I'm also hoping that um, when I'm done talking, that, that we can all talk about this together. The uh, French author Albert Camus said there is one, one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Speaking for myself and, and for anyone else I know, and I know several people who have attempted suicide, I know some people who completed suicide, and so I don't have their opinion handy, but um, 
for myself and for those I know who attempted suicide, it was not and is not a philosophical problem. I am sorry. I never once attempted suicide because I arrived at a philosophical conclusion after a philosophical meditation or consultation with myself or with anybody else. What motivated me to suicide again and again and again was despair. It was the absence of hope in my life. It was the refusal of hope. Um, not only did I not have any hope, I was bound and determined for much of my life to refuse hope. I, I often talk about um, my history of depression, which obviously is related to the suicide attempts. And, and I talk about my experience of depression as, as kind of floundering around in what I call emotional quicksand. And, and it just pulls me and pulls me under and under. And, and the harder I struggled, the worse it got and the deeper I went. But I have to be honest, you know, I was never as isolated as I felt. I have always had good, loving, caring, compassionate people in my life. I have had family. I have had friends. I have had wives and children. And there were always lifelines being thrown out to me. Um, and, and I do not know, honestly, looking back, I am not sure if I was so caught up in the struggle that I couldn't see the lifeline or if I felt so immobilized by the quicksand of depression and despair that I couldn't reach for the lifeline. But a part of me believes that I just damned well didn't want a lifeline. I was either going to get out of this myself or I was going to go down under, but nobody else was going to save me. I did not need rescuing. except that I did. Um, the, the meaning of the, the actual word itself, suicide, and, and we don't tend to use this term, but, but the word suicide actually means self-murder. And, and it has helped me over the years to think about my suicide attempts to, to reframe them in terms of, yes, I have attempted to murder myself on a number of occasions. Um, Suicide in that sense is, is an act, I won't say a crime, but I will say it is an act where the perpetrator and the victim are the same person, which makes it extremely difficult to unravel the psychology of it. I, I want you to imagine um, living with someone, living intimately with someone for a long period of time, um, years, decades, and, and you are so close to this person, it is like you are joined at the hip with this person. They are there with you 24 hours a day. But this is a dysfunctional relationship that I'm asking you to imagine, and this person to whom you are joined at the hip spends those 24 hours a day berating you, insulting you, um, denigrating you, telling you that you are worthless, that you are useless, that you don't even deserve to exist. They remind you constantly that they hate you, just in case you're likely to have forgotten that at any point along the way. So this is the person that you live with, and they frequently threaten to murder you, and on occasion, they go so far as to actually make the attempt at murdering you. They throw you off a bridge in Dayton, Ohio, or they cut your wrist in a motel room in Buffalo, New York, or they give you way more pills than you should take um, at various times. And when that happens, when, when this person to whom you are joined at the hip makes one of those attempts on your life, 
you end up in the hospital where you are treated and, and ministered to and, and, and stabilized. The person who made the attempt on your life gets to stay home. They don't come to the hospital with you. It's weird. It's just weird. But you end up in the hospital and they just kind of hide out at home. Um, and then after 10 days or two weeks or so, at least in my experience in the hospital, um, the doctors discharge you and you go home. And guess who's waiting for you when you get home? The same person who tried to kill you. And the first thing they say when you walk in the door is, okay, you made it this time, but don't think you're out of the woods because I'm going to kill you eventually. I don't know how many of us would stand for very long to live with a person like that. The problem is, when it's yourself, it is very, very hard to get away. Um, when I think about suicide as self-murder, it does get complicated because when I think, for instance, of going off the bridge in Dayton, Ohio, I honestly, and I, and I have devoted considerable thought to this, I do not know if, if I was pushed from that bridge by this person who hated me, who was joined to me at the hip, and had been threatening to kill me, I do not know if that person pushed me off the bridge or if I jumped off the bridge to get away from that person because I knew of no other way to get away from that person. And I guess in the long run it doesn't matter. Um, one way or the other, I went off that bridge. The um, Irish poet Yeats wrote, out of our quarrels with others we make rhetoric, out of our quarrels with ourselves we make poetry, and I have rephrased that as, out of our quarrels with others we make murder and war, out of our quarrels with ourselves we make suicide. And every one of my suicide attempts came after months and months of quarreling with myself and threatening myself, and, and eventually I just couldn't live with it. Uh, again, in reading as much as I have about suicide, an awful lot of people seem to think that, um, well, I shouldn't say it that way. It, it seems that for a lot of folks, suicide um, is preceded by thoughts like, nobody will miss me anyway, I might as well die. The world will be better off without me, I might as well die. I never thought those things. I knew that my kids would miss me. I knew that my wife and my friends would miss me. And I didn't think the world would be better off without me. I didn't necessarily think it would be worse off in general, except that I knew that I would be inflicting pain and devastation on the people closest to me. But my self-hatred was so great that it outweighed even, even the love that I had for my four kids. And I, and, and I am almost 70 years old. And in seven years of living, I have never loved anyone or anything as much as I love those four kids. And yet, I hated myself so much that I was able to put them to bed at night, kiss them goodnight, and after they were asleep, to walk out the door and go out and make an attempt to die. Um, that's the level of self-hatred that I had. So, you know, I think circumstances, events, things going on in my life had something to do with the timing of my attempts at suicide. And, and again, some folks' attempts are, are really triggered by, set off by, triggered is the wrong word to use, they, they are really set off by, occasioned by a breakup in a relationship or the loss of a job or something you know, traumatic. You know, for me, the impulse to suicide was just always there. Um, and, and so an event might come along in my life that 
that in some way precipitated it, but, it, but what it was doing was bringing out a pre-existing condition. For me, suicide was a pre-existing condition. I don't think that's covered by Obamacare. Um, yeah. So another poet, W.H. Auden, wrote um, in, in what were probably the six most significant words of the 20th century, we must love one another or die. Um, and so I rephrase that. And, and what I've learned is we must love ourselves or die. Um, certainly, I had to learn to love myself, to love my life. I accept myself when I love my life. I'm not quite sure that I can say I love myself, but I do love my life. Um, and I accept myself. Some of the reading that I do, and, 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 and again, related to my experience with suicide, which was my experience was that my own self was the problem, and my own self was a burden to carry around. And, and so on the one hand, I was trying to escape that self-hating piece of me. And on the other hand, sometimes I was just exhausted from arguing with it. <laughs> it's like, I am so tired of this. And, and suicide was my attempt to finally get some peace and quiet. And, and I used to joke with one of my counselors about, you know, maybe I just need a good night's sleep, which at the time was a joke. And now it turns out I recognize that's actually very good advice. And now I do remind myself of that sometimes when I'm starting to feel that quicksand pulling at me. And I have to remind myself, I just need a good night's sleep. I'm just tired. That's all I am. Um, but I do think it's worth considering when we think about suicide. Suicide is not a uniquely modern phenomenon. We all know that. You can go back into ancient writings, and you can go back through the, the Bible, and, and, and any culture, any society, anywhere. Suicide, um, it's always been an option. It's been looked at differently by different cultures. But, so it's not a modern phenomenon. But I do think that what is modern is that I, I think that we, as individual selves, carry a tremendous burden that, that was not carried by most of our ancestors. We have so much more freedom. We have so many more choices. And therefore, so much more responsibility for making the right choices and making the most of our freedom. And we live in a culture that says you can be anything you want to be if you just work hard enough and this and that. And I am telling you, that is awfully hard for a lot of people to live up to. Um, and, and I am not saying that we should not have that kind of freedom or those choices. I am just telling you that I think the modern self is burdened in an unprecedented way. And, and I think that the freedom that, that a lot of people savor about modern life feels to other people like a cross to bear, a burden to carry. Um, because let's face it, we are not all able to keep up in the competitive um, races that, that we're expected to run. And we don't all have the emotional wherewithal to deal with the pressures that are put on us, um, starting from a young age, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, I, I quite honestly think that, that it is a, I'll, I'll say crime, that's probably too strong a word, but it, the, the pressures that we put on young people are just absolutely wrong. It is just astonishing the pressures that we put on our kids, even before they're teenagers, but certainly when they're teenagers, that they are supposed to start making decisions about the rest of their lives, and they don't even know who they are, and their brains aren't even fully formed. So there's a burden to the self, and that was certainly true for me. Um,
about a year or so ago, uh, there was a movie that came out on Netflix called 13 Reasons Why. And that was about teenage suicide. And, and I will be honest, I never watched it. Um, so I only know of it by, by secondhand reports and reviews that I read. But I know it's based on a young adult novel. And I know it has to do with a high school girl who completes suicide and leaves behind, I think, a video in which she basically says, these are the 13 reasons why I killed myself. And essentially, she's talking about all the people who bullied her, the people who betrayed her, the people who weren't there for her. It's basically this indictment of all these people around her. It was, it was interesting um, for me, as someone involved in the suicide prevention community, to, to watch how, how others in the suicide prevention community dealt with this. We tell people over and over again, um, bringing up the issue of suicide, talking about suicide, doesn't increase anybody's risk. Don't be afraid to talk about suicide. But here's 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, and all of a sudden we're going, I don't know if we want our kids watching this. It could put ideas into their heads. And so it was, it was this fine line between wildlife. But I, you know, I thought about it, um, and, and I ended up, I, I did not take a position one way or the other on that. Um, I figure people are going to do what they're going to do if parents will let their kids watch that and talk to their kids about it, that's great. That can be a step forward in having this conversation. If other parents felt it was too risky, then that was fine. It wasn't up to me either as a suicide prevention person or as somebody with NAMI Missoula. It wasn't up to me to tell people what they should do about 13 Reasons Why. And again, I never watched it. Um, but, but certainly it set me to thinking about um, and, and set other people to thinking about the cultural messages that we send about suicide. And, and so again, preparing to come here this evening, I was thinking back to, you know, long before Netflix was around. Um, I went to high school way back in the 1960s, and I think that the education that I got was pretty typical for, for that time. And I will tell you what my high school English curriculum consisted of. It consisted very heavily of, of Shakespeare. And so we read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And, and in fact, we went, my class, uh, the English class I was part of, um, went to the local movie theater on a field trip. And they had a special screening of the film version of Julius Caesar, which was actually very well done and had Marlon Brando and James Mason and some other really good actors. And, and I remember. Um, that towards the end of this movie, towards the end of this play about Julius Caesar, you have the character of Brutus, who was one of the conspirators who um, assassinated Caesar. And at the end, Brutus, rather than uh, be defeated and have to surrender to the armies of Mark Antony, Brutus kills himself. He has his um, faithful servant hold out a broadsword, and Brutus impales himself. And, and I vividly remember the scene from the movie. Um, done bloodlessly, as things were done back in the early 60s. It was, it was bloodless um, kind of violence. And, and then shortly after that, uh, Mark Antony, played by Marlon Brando, gives this um, funeral oration for Brutus, or this brief eulogy for, for Brutus. And he says, this was the noblest Roman of them all. And so what message was I getting from Julius Caesar? Suicide can be a noble act. 
Well, then we watched Romeo and Juliet, and I don't think I have to tell you much about the messages that come out of Romeo and Juliet regarding suicide, but let's face it, it is tragic. The suicides are mistaken. They really weren't meant to happen. But all in all, it is this wildly romantic, passionate suicide. Love, it's worth dying for. And then we read Hamlet. So, you know, in addition to the fact that in Hamlet, one of the, one of the characters, Ophelia, drowns, presumably intentionally, um, and, and she has been driven mad by Hamlet, um, as, as many of us in high school were driven mad by having to read Hamlet, but um, in, in any case, so there's a suicide of madness. Um, so, so with Shakespeare, you've got the noble suicide, the wildly romantic suicide. Now you've got the suicide of madness. And then you've got Hamlet himself. And, and I've always thought this is, this is so significant, it seems to me, and yet I seem to be the only one who's noticed it or talked about it. The single, the single best-known stage dialogue in the entire English language theater for hundreds of years it's to be or not to be, that is the question. It is Hamlet's soliloquy about suicide. It sits there at the center of our literary culture, and we give it to kids in high school. And I don't know what teachers do with it now, um, but I know when I was exposed to these Shakespearean suicides, we talked about the play, we talked about the characters, we talked about the language. I don't ever remember a discussion about suicide. I don't ever remember a teacher saying, well, what do you guys think about this? Is it appropriate for someone to kill themselves rather than surrender to, to the conquering general? Is it, is it appropriate to kill yourself because of your family's interfering with your love affair? Is it appropriate to kill yourself for, you know, for whatever reason? We never had that discussion. And then I was thinking on the way over here this evening about, um, and Lord knows there are plenty of other examples, but if you remember, this goes back, I'm guessing, 20 years. The movie Thelma and Louise, again, a wonderfully cinematic ending as they drive off the cliff into the Grand Canyon, launching themselves rather than what? Rather than surrender to law enforcement and maybe go to prison. Or worse yet, if you remember the movie Thelma and Louise, it was clear that the worst fate for them would have had to have gone back to their humdrum lives as, you know, whatever, housewives, divorcees, whatever they were. Suicide was, was this glorious gesture of defiance. So suicide is a defiant gesture. Um, what else? I don't know. Um, monks, and, and I say this with all due respect, Buddhist monks immolating themselves in, in protest against the Vietnam War. Um, there's a lot of cultural messages. I'm just saying they didn't start with 13 reasons why. And I guess what I'm saying is we need to be, and, and by we I mean the whole community out there, the whole country, we've got to be either more careful about what we expose ourselves and our children to, but if we're going to, and if they're going to be exposed to that for whatever reason, talk about it. The, the other thing when I think about this, you know, the, the teachers never talked about the suicides in these plays. This is even stranger. With all the hospitalizations that I've had, and, and years of counseling with some very good counselors that have worked with me on my depression and so forth, they will check in with me to, to ask if I am feeling suicidal. They're very good about doing that. 
And if I happen to be hospitalized as a result of suicidal ideation or a suicide attempt, they generally will ask me why I did it. To be honest, they don't always. Sometimes they, they don't even go that far. But, but a lot of times they at least will say, so why did you want to die? But beyond that, I have never had an extended conversation with a mental health professional about, Jack, you have been trying to kill yourself for a long time. What is it about suicide? Why do you think that you need to do that? Why do you think you should do that? Who told you you were allowed to do that? I mean, nothing. You know, They don't ask, have you read any books about this? Would you like to read a book about this? Should we have a conversation about this? They've never said to me, Jack, if you knew somebody, if you had a friend, who told you they were going to attempt suicide, would you say, you go, or would you try to stop them? And of course, I've had friends, and I have tried to stop them, and I have, and I have gone to the hospital with them and sat in emergency rooms with them because I didn't think they should be doing that. A clear double standard, since I seem to think it was okay for me to do it. So we don't talk about it. We're, we've got this conspiracy of silence. The other thing, and, I, and I'll get through these last couple points pretty quickly. Um, and this one especially quickly because I was going to trot out some, some examples to back me up, but we don't need examples. We live in this country in a culture of violence, and, and I won't go through the examples I had. You can't go 24 hours in this country without being reminded that we live in a culture of violence. America is a violent country with a violent history. I am proud to be an American, but I'm telling you, there is something. There's just that violent streak. And it should not and cannot surprise us, as long as this country remains as violent as it is, that some of that violence is going to be turned back by people onto themselves. That's, that's going to continue to happen until we cultivate a different kind of culture with different kind of values. And I know I'm preaching to what is not technically a choir, but, but figuratively a choir here. Um, because I know that you people already know this. but. But that's why we've got to get out and speak to the rest of the community, too. Instead of a culture of violence, we need a culture of concern. We need a culture of compassion. We need a culture of solidarity. We need a culture in which any loss is everyone's loss. Every one of us needs to feel, and I, and I say this to audiences when I do suicide prevention, they kind of look at me and I say, but we need to feel diminished when we read that someone has died from suicide. We need to take that personally. We need to say, what are we as a community not doing right? We can do that. We won't know for somebody who completes suicide, it is too late to ask that person, what is wrong? What are you feeling? What can we do to stop? It is too late. So we have to ask, what can we as a community do? Um, I've got a long quotation here from, from a book called The Enigma of Suicide, and again, I'll. I'll, I'll not go through the whole quotation, but, but essentially at, at one point in this book, The Enigma of Suicide, the author says, in short, and to oversimplify, we might reduce the suicide rate by giving people more reasons to stay alive. And, and that is what our community needs to do, um, to make sure that everybody has a reason to stay alive, to make sure everybody has a lifeline and knows where it is, so I will close with um, one last, um, this will be a pop culture reference. Um, I'm actually pretty proud that I've gone from Wittgenstein to Thelma and Louise in one possibly seamless presentation. Or not, but one of my favorite movies in terms of wildly romantic movies is the um, 
Michael Mann version of The Last of the Mohicans. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but but so you've got Daniel Day-Lewis and you've got Madeleine Stowe, and and um, you know this is set during the French and Indian War, colonial times, um, and and they are trying to escape from the British soldiers, and uh, at some point they are trapped in a cave above a waterfall, and um, Daniel Day-Lewis they they decide he's got to escape to keep up the fight and to enlist others in the fight, and Madeleine Stowe, the damsel in distress. She'll have to let herself be captured by the British while Daniel Day-Lewis gets away. And Daniel Day-Lewis says, again, in this just wildly romantic moment, as he's headed out to jump over the waterfall um, to get away from the British, he says to her, stay alive. I will find you. And what I'm saying is the message that we need to be carrying out into this community to every member of this community. We have to be saying to everyone, stay alive. You leave a trail of breadcrumbs, you send up a flare, you scream until you are hoarse, but stay alive and we will find you. And then, having given that message, we've got to follow that up because we have to be looking and listening and paying attention for those breadcrumbs, those flares, those screams. But that's what we got to do. Um, although you may... You may have some other ideas and suggestions as to what we have to do, but that's what I have to offer. <laughs>